hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. You're listening to Queer Money episode 184, a unique episode where the tables are turned on us. We're being interviewed on our own show. As listeners know, Capital One is a sponsor of the Queer Money Podcast, our Money Tip Tuesdays on Facebook and YouTube, and sponsored two stops on our Queer Money Live tour last summer. Well, we flew into one of Capital One's corporate centers in Richmond, Virginia last month to speak to its Outfront Business Resource Group and were interviewed for a fireside chat by Costanza Castelnuovo Tedesco, Capital One's Managing Vice President of Marketing for Retail. Costanza asked us about queer money and what makes queer money unique relative to other communities. We talk about why and how David and I got into money education and how corporations can help the queer community overcome its unique money challenges. Right out of the gate, Costanza shares her very personal story for why she's a strong advocate of the queer community and why she's passionate about using her platform as a leader at Capital One to help support the LGBTQ plus community. So we replicated a bit of that fireside chat just for you. Grab some hot cocoa and get ready for a bit of a retrospective and a glimpse into how the queer community is getting financially stronger. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Welcome back to another edition of Queer Money, where I'm going to interview the debt-free guys. <laughs> That's right. Friends, we are going to be interviewed on this episode. Recently, John and I had the privilege of speaking to several hundred people at Capital One as a part of their LGBT BRG group. Uh, so for those of you who are not familiar, BRGs are business research groups, individuals who are either a part of or allies of the LGBT community that offer not only help, but guidance for companies when it comes to talking to or connecting with the LGBT community and have in many ways been support for companies so that they can in turn support our community. So we're excited to do this because after Going through the discussion that we had at Capital One, John and I thought that this would be a great conversation to share with a much broader audience. Uh, we were surprised and had a lot of fun during this conversation, and we thought it would be a good thing for us to share it with you. The process, though, was started off by Costanza Tedesco sharing a very interesting story about how she has been a part of the LGBT community. So, Costanza, if you don't mind, we would love to hear that story. Well, thank you. Being an ally has been so important to me in my life. When I graduated from college, so if you could see me now, you could see I have fabulously gray hair, so you will <laughs> believe the fact that I graduated from college in the mid-'80s. When I graduated from college, I decided to live my dream by moving to New York City and working in the fashion industry, which I did do. But if you have a sense of the fashion industry in New York City in the 80s, you'll remember that it was the height of the AIDS crisis. And so while I lived my dream, I also lost a lot of friends and colleagues and bosses and mentors. And in the process, I saw a lot of bravery. And I think since then, I've really been trying to honor that bravery. So that's a part of it. That's the painful part of the story. The joyful part of the story, though, is I feel through my life, 
my queer family has really taught me kind of the the idea of radical acceptance. I've benefited from that radical acceptance. I've learned that radical acceptance. And as I've tried to live by the same code, I found that my life got so much richer. So when I think about the kind of culture I want to create in the world, in my company, um, I try to bring that idea of radical acceptance forward. So those are the two two main reasons why it's so important for me to be an ally. Wow. Awesome. Thank you for Thank sharing. You. That's, that's awesome. I know that from both John and from me, we are very grateful. I often times think to myself, where would our community be if it wasn't for allies? We have had the support of so many individuals, individuals like you and others who have been there in many ways to support us and to be there with us to continue the fight for equality. So we thank you for sharing that story. It's a reminder to all of us that there is a rich history in the LGBT community and that we have to pay respects, so to speak, to that rich history, even though some of that rich history is filled with tragedy and uncomfortableness. It's through that um, that our community has made such great progress. Yeah, so we're going to flip the script and let Costanza take over and uh, ask us some questions. This is going to be a hard one for me. <laughs> okay, so I'm in control now. Um, so first of all, I want, you know, there's so much lately about origin stories. I want the origin story. How did you guys become the debt free guys? Uh, so this is a story that John and I are comfortable telling because I think we've told it quite a few times, but not all of you have, have heard this, that after being together for about a year and a half, John and I were in our puppy love phase and we were enjoying life and really enjoying our time together, so to speak, living fabulously, living large. And one weekend we decided to go up to the mountains in Colorado to a small town called Winter Park. If you're not familiar with Winter Park, it's a beautiful little ski town. And uh, John had a friend living up there with his girlfriend and we went to visit them. And although John and I had been there before, for some reason this weekend, it really resonated with us. And we said, we could see ourselves being up here more. And for some reason, we got this crazy idea in our head that this would be the great place for us to have a vacation home. So on our way out of town on Sunday, we decided to stop at a real estate office. And the plan was to look at buying land and building a vacation home. I love modern architecture and someday I will. I'll repeat that. Someday <laughs> I will. <laughs> I will build a modern home, whether that's a 250 square foot <laughs> or a 2,500 square a foot home. modern home. Uh, I'll do that. So we left town on this high of having this fantasy of buying land and building a house. And I jokingly say now, I am so grateful that we were locked in a car together for an hour and a half because during that hour and a half drive from the top of the mountain in Winter Park, 9,120 feet, all the way down to Denver elevation, 5,280 feet, we had this conversation that went from this fantasy high of buying land and building a house to buying an existing place to renting on the weekends to wow, we are financial messes. We probably shouldn't even be going up there on vacation. And we pulled up in front of our place, grabbed our bags, opened up the door, walked down a flight of stairs into a basement apartment 
And I know in some places a basement apartments basement apartments can be kind of chic, but this is definitely not the case <laughs> for the one that we had. And it was at that moment that John and I kind of, in a sense, crashed on the floor of our apartment and confessed to each other that we had $51,000 in credit card debt. And it was at that moment we realized our life was not going in the direction that we wanted it to. So you really didn't put it together until that moment. Now, for that first year and a half, we were both in financial services for our entire adult careers. And I think between the two of us at the time, we had 13 years of combined experience. But we just assumed that the other one couldn't be doing as bad with their finances as we were. So we just kind of went with that until we had this aha moment where we were like, not only are we both in financial services, but we're both financial messes. And um, that was sort of a, a rock bottom moment. That's when we kind of realized that it was... um it was important for us to make some changes in our lives. And that's how we kind of started the process of us getting out of debt. We became the debt-free guys a little bit later when we realized after getting out of credit card debt that we weren't alone, uh, especially for other people we saw in the LGBT community who were living lifestyles very similar to us, probably earning the same amount of money that we were or less, and they were racking up credit card debt too. So how do you think you got there? And then how'd you get into that credit card debt? And what were the first steps you took to get out of it? Yeah, so um, that's a good story. <laughs> Personally, when I moved out to Denver in 1999, I had a, received a $5,000 graduation gift from my grandparents to kind of start my adult life. I had no debt at the time, no credit card debt, no auto loan debt, no mortgage, obviously, and no student loan debt. Uh, so I started out with that $5,000 surplus plus whatever I had saved up for myself. And within less than a year after that, I had amassed about $34,000 of that debt that I brought to the table. And the reason that I acquired my debt was I felt you know, that was my first foray into being an adult. Uh, I wasn't living in college anymore. I shouldn't have posters hung with sticky tack on my wall anymore. And so I thought I need to have all these adult things. So I went out and of course, the best place to get adult things at the time was Pottery Barn. So my brand new apartment, the first apartment I ever had on my own um, was wall-to-wall Pottery Barn, including a $5,000, uh, I'm sorry, a $3,000 couch. And I was new to Colorado, and the reason I moved out there was to go snowboarding. So I needed, I couldn't wear the same snowboarding equipment and have the same boots and bindings that I did in Pennsylvania. So I had to buy all that new stuff. Plus, I was new to a new city, so I needed to have all the right clothing, needed to go out every weekend, needed to have all the right stuff. So I looked the part, I looked good, and could easily make friends. And then I talked myself into putting a down payment on. Uh, a brand new car on my credit card. So for me, I acquired things, big expenses mostly. And of course, I'm sure I nickeled and dimed myself here and there, but most of my debt came from big expenses. But David was definitely the nickel and dimer. Right. I was the person that went to breakfast and got a coffee and a bagel or a coffee and a muffin five, six days a week. Uh, I was the person who went out to lunch almost every single day while I was working. And so... I wasn't making big purchases, but the simple fact was that I was spending hundreds of dollars a month on breakfast and hundreds of dollars a month on lunch and then hundreds of dollars a month on dinner, whether that was out or in. And I just was slowly, I was putting all that stuff on my credit card, partly because I had a, a scarcity mindset that I had to have money in my bank account. And in order to keep money in my bank account, all my expenses then, my daily living expenses, just kept on going on my credit card. 
I would make payments on it, but the credit card balances just kept on growing. And pretty soon, the amount that I owed on my credit cards <laughs> was starting to get to the point where I wouldn't have much money left over. Or I'm sorry, the amount that I had to pay on my credit cards was getting so high that I wouldn't have much money left over. And that's when things probably started to get really kind of tough for me because then I was stuck with this not only scarcity mindset of trying to keep money in my bank account, but then scarcity mindset of trying to keep money altogether. So after we sort of had this aha moment, that the following weekend, David did what has now evolved into our spending analysis, which uh, people can get from our website at debtfreeguys.com. Um, basically, what he did was he got all of our credit card statements, all of our account statements everywhere that he could find them, and itemized all of our expenses for an entire year. And when he did that, it just blew our minds to find out how we were spending our money. You know, We were spending $400 a week dining out, as well as $400 a week buying groceries. We're just two individuals and relatively fit at the time. And so we weren't eating an exorbitant amount of food, but we were wasting a lot of money buying the food that we did get. And we realized that our spending was crazy. And we started to ask ourselves, well, are we spending according to to our values? Or are, are we spending on the things that are important to us? And while we enjoyed, while I enjoyed going out and clubbing and partying, and David enjoyed his fancy coffee every every morning, um, at the end of the day, we realized that these weren't fueling our soul. They weren't necessarily what we wanted. But we realized that we were making up for childhoods of not being accepted, of being bullied and picked on, and and in some cases not accepted from our family. We sort of grew up with these negative emotions about ourselves, these limiting beliefs that David alluded to earlier about ourselves and what we were worth. And that sort of manifested itself in our adulthood. Uh, when we finally were able to find our community and, and be out, we felt like if we didn't have the right kind of lifestyle, if we didn't present ourselves right, that a new community, the queer community would also reject us. And so it was sort of that combination of things that got us into the situation that we were in and then realizing what was important to us, that we weren't spending according to our values and figuring out what those values were, was sort of the first step to figuring out how to get out of debt. So is that where you would recommend for anyone that has credit card debt to start? Yeah, I think it is kind of that, a little bit of a one-two punch there of what do you really want in life? What are the important things to you? And clearly we can't say everything, right? Because uh, although it's nice to have the, the fantasy of I can have everything that I want at times our budgets just simply don't allow for it. <laughs> so the first thing is to decide what are the most important things that you really want out of life. Then after that, take a look at your spending and see, does your spending align with the things that you really want? And that's why we encourage everyone to do that kind of a regular spending analysis. So you spoke a little bit about the pressure you felt to kind of be accepted by the community and how that might have driven some of your spending. As you think about the LGBTQ community, and you've made it your life mission to help the community be better with money, what do you think are the unique challenges that this community faces? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think probably the, the easiest first answer that comes to mind is the fact that in up to 29 states, we can still be denied housing and employment and services 
because of her LGBTQ status and we have no legal recourse. So that does maybe suggest that we need to have more than the traditional three to six months worth of living expenses uh, saved in an emergency savings account that oftentimes forces many LGBTQ people to gravitate to to places that feel or seem safer, such as New York City or LA or Chicago, San Francisco. But as we all know, none of those cities are cheap to live in. Uh, so many of us in our community also struggle with earning more than the average. Uh, so we struggle to earn more than the average, but we're living in uh, very expensive cities. So those are just some of the first things that come to my mind. I think that there's also, going back to that idea of income, there's some systemic issues there. If we know that we work in a industry or we live in an area where LGBT individuals are not able to be themselves at work, then there's probably some either unconscious bias or maybe our own bias that prevents us from excelling in our jobs. If you climb the corporate ladder, the more you go up, the more people want to know about you. You know, if you look at many senior level individuals and in corporations across the country, there's uh, psychology tests uh, that companies have done for those employees to make sure that they're stable individuals. So if they're doing a psychology test on a senior individual, they probably know a little bit more about their life as well. And if you're trying to hide who you are, and you know mm -hmm. that the higher you go, the more you have to be out, you may intentionally say, I'm not going to go higher. I don't want people to know about my life. I don't want people to know who I love. You may avoid going to social functions where oftentimes team members or senior managers get to know you. And when they get to know you, it makes it, makes it easier for them to support you in a career progression that you want to have. Uh, so I think that that's, that's kind of one of the systemic things that's happening. I think John and I also, you know, we suffered from this, this these feelings of inferiority when you feel inferior because whether it's churches, the news, politicians, family members, classmates, whoever it may be, if you're hearing this constant, you don't fit in, you're not a part of, you don't belong here, you start to feel that about yourself. And when you don't have that confidence and you have that insecurity, it becomes very difficult for you to see yourself as a successful person. I think that's one of the reasons why, by and large, our community suffers at a higher rate than normal with suicide and suicide attempts. And all of that weighs on who we are, and that weighs on us financially as well. So it's a whole system that just plays out in ways that are negative and reinforcing, or can be negative and reinforcing. So let's talk a little bit more about in the workplace. You talked about bias happening in the workplace, which I would imagine would start us getting down to questions of fair pay. How is that happening? And, and would you say there is a wage gap for the LGBTQ community? Yeah, based on some of the studies that we are aware of, and there aren't enough studies about finance and the LGBTQ community, uh, but based on what we are aware of, there does seem to be evidence of there being a sexual orientation and gender identity wage gap similar to the wage gap that women suffer. It's hard to pinpoint and quantify that exactly, but we do know that over 73% of individuals, including LGBTQ individuals, are hiding something about themselves at work. So 
one result of that is that many people are coming to work and as David alluded to, are hiding something about themselves. So they're not able to give 100% of themselves at work. Um, they're only able to give 75, 85%. And uh, when you're competing, especially trying to climb the corporate ladder, it gets very competitive the higher up you go and, and you've got to bring your 100% and, and many of our community aren't able to do that. Um, we also know um, there are instances that have popped up around the country that many people are aware of that people are prohibited from climbing the ladder within their organization because they are LGBTQ or they aren't given that job um, because they're LGBTQ. There was a study done by the University of Syria a couple of years ago that suggested that even just appearing or sounding LGBTQ, not necessarily even being, but just appearing to be, you're less likely to be hired, promoted, or given a raise. Um, and so we have those additional hurdles that we have to overcome that not everybody broadly has to, has to overcome. One of the things I, I love about the conversations that I have with you guys is is how you bring the data and how you bring the statistics to bear to really kind of unveil the issues that this community faces. I'm curious if you'd say that there are any remaining issues that need to be studied that haven't yet been studied. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> you know, I think when the studies that have been done, they've maybe leaned more towards the cis gay male perspective. And mm -hmm. further along in the uh, abbreviations, we kind of drop off. For example, we know that many transgender people struggle financially, but we don't know exactly what that looks like. We have some some indication, but we don't fully understand that. And if we don't fully understand that, we can't comprehensively help them. That's one example. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's, you know, a lot of the data that's out there about the LGBT community is oftentimes at a very cursory level. We're included in other studies, which we're very grateful for. We're grateful for that fact that that's happening. But there aren't studies being done or very few studies that are being done that are focused on the LGBT community as the primary subjects of that study, especially when we were in reference to financial information. I think that there are a number of studies out there of other aspects of our lives, but the financial aspect is the one that John and I are focusing on. And I think what that is uh, kind of leads to or shows the fact that our community is falling behind financially because we're not aware we're not being included and we're not aware of where the community needs support. And because we're not aware where the community needs support, that support and that education is not being created. It makes it more difficult for not only us as educators, but also financial services organizations to actually understand how to serve. Yeah, David and I often say that we think that our community is sort of at the the younger end of the maturation spectrum. You know, it's it's sort of a, a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. To your point, in the '80s, we were really struggling to live. So, trying to to achieve financial parity and financial wealth maybe fell down the list of priorities. Well, we've kind of uh, you know we haven't cured AIDS, but it's not the same issue that it was way back then. Um, and now that we've have we have marriage equality, that's great. But what that's now allowing us the opportunity to do is is to start seeing ourselves, our relationships as actually equals equal to our straight peers. And now we're kind of at that phase where, okay, well, well now that we're able to to marry the person we love, 
what does that look like? Do we want to have children? And if we want to have children, what does that look like? Or how, and how do we do that? And now that we are a partner, a couple legally, um, we get all those benefits. But now, what does our financial life look like? How do we how do we budget our money together? How do we save for the same goals that we want to achieve? And how do we support each other in the individual goals that we have? So we're just kind of at that young phase, I think, financially in our community. And so it's I think it's incumbent upon us as a community and and David and I take great responsibility in this is that now that we're sort of we have the opportunity to have that discussion. Now let's really figure out uh, where do we stand financially and how do we address the needs that we have and you know how do we continue to enhance the successes that we are having. David, I know last time we talked, I mean certainly I represent Capital One and coming from the financial services industry, we want to know how we can help. And you said last time that financial services have left the LGBTQ community out of the conversation for years. Right. How do we bring this community into the conversation and how can we help? Well, I think that um, maybe first uh, I'll take a, a stab at why we believe that we've been left out of the conversation. And I think that there's kind of a couple of things there. When we look at the way in which financial services has been presented to individuals in general, it has typically been towards white men. And then after that, white couples. And it's only probably been in the last 20 years or so, maybe a little bit longer, but in the last 20 years, that other communities have started to be included. But there are so few things out there that are addressing the needs of the LGBT community, even just showing us in the advertising uh, is an invitation to say to ourselves, you belong here. You belong on this side of financial well-being. And so that I think that's, that's a great place to start. You know, we kind of have, um, John and I have this we like to use the hashtag WeExist365, uh, and that's um, really kind of a call to organizations that we are more than a rainbow-colored logo in the month of June, that we exist 365 days of the year, and we're not here to just be a great party for you at the end of June or throughout the month of June, that we're here as members, as human beings, we exist 365 days of the year. So if you want to support us, we absolutely love the support during Pride, but there's so many other ways that you can help support us. When I think about financial institutions especially, John and I used to work for a large brokerage firm, and that brokerage firm prided itself on receiving a 100 on the Human Rights Corporate Equality Index every year. But for three years in a row, we begged our marketing department to provide us with material that we could put in front of LGBT individuals when a financial advisor was speaking to LGBT clients. This was something that the financial advisors were actually asking us because John and I were the leaders of the of our business resource group. Those advisors are reaching out to us and saying, can you please provide us with information that shows people that are like the people I'm talking to? And three years in a row, we got pushback saying no. And this is one of the reasons why we're so appreciative of Capital One is that the fact that you are completely okay being out there at the forefront and not letting other companies do that. You know that we have needs and you're willing to serve those. I think one of the other things is that, as I said, we exist 365 days of the year. What other ways can you support 
the community all throughout the year when it comes to what you do as a business. And I'm speaking here to other financial services companies. Our community definitely needs financial education. And a study from last year really pointed this out that 50% of individuals who were surveyed who were LGBTQ said that they did not have a basic checking or savings account. And that was shocking to us. That just means that our community is not educated. And so maybe you're presenting information to the community that is just maybe beyond us in some cases. A website called The Hornet, which is sort of a social, like a Facebook for the LGBTQ community, did a study a couple of years ago. And the respondents to that study said they simply want companies, corporations to engage them in an authentic way, in a real and relevant way to their community. And I think that's one of the great things that Capital One's doing. Yes, you're there for us at Pride, but you're also engaging with our community in, in countless other ways throughout the year in ways that, that our community needs it, such as partnering with the Trevor Project, such as uh, partnering with the Ali Fournay organization in New York City, and, and several other ways, as well as sponsoring the Queer Money Podcast, which we appreciate. So you are an example of a company that understands the community in a way that many companies have been challenged to understand our community and that are trying to serve our community in, in a way that, that we need that. Well, that's why we love partnering with you because <laughs> our whole goal is to, you know, reach out to everybody and help them reach a state of financial well-being. And you guys are such great messengers and educators on that topic for your community. It's very powerful for us. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. Back at you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Costanza, for taking time out of your busy schedule to record this episode of Queer Money. More importantly, thank you for being such a strong ally, both personally and professionally, of our community. David and I strongly believe that our community has made the progress that it has in no small part because of allies such as you. Thank you, too, to our listeners for listening to another episode of Queer Money. We hope this episode gives you insight on where the community has come and where it's going financially, why this topic is so important, and how corporate America can be a welcome ally of the queer community. Finally, please help us help more queer people by liking, commenting, and sharing Queer Money on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk with you next week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.